Welcome to Medicus, a podcast made by students about everything in the world of medicine. Welcome back to Medicus. We have a different sort of episode for you today. Recently, the Loyola University of Chicago hosted a webinar with Dr. Anthony Fauci, and we got permission to share it on the podcast with you guys. He starts off by talking a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic and the future outlook, and then he moves on to talk a little bit more about humanism and medicine, his own career, and he shares a few personal anecdotes. At the end, he also gives a little bit of advice for medical students graduating right now. It's very uplifting stuff, and we hope you enjoy it. So with that, we'll cut to the interview. Good morning and welcome. Thank you to everyone who has joined us. I am so pleased to offer a special welcome to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who knows our Jesuit values because of his own experience as a student at Regis High School in New York and the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. So now I would like to introduce our Strict School of Medicine Dean, Professor and Chief Diversity Officer, Dr. Sam Marzo. Sam? Thank you, Dr. Rooney. As you said, uh, Stritch is not just another medical school, and this is certainly not just another webinar. Today's guest has been an advisor to six U.S. presidents, and he is President Biden's chief medical advisor. He is a prolific researcher and author. In the 2020 analysis of Google Scholar citations, our guest ranked as the 32nd most cited living researcher. According to the Web of Science, he ranked ninth out of 2.5 million authors in the field of immunology by total citation count over a 41-year period. He has received 45 honorary degrees from colleges and universities in the United States and abroad. In 2006, he received an honorary Doctor of Science degree from our beloved Stritz School of Medicine. In 2008, President Bush awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the country's highest civilian honor. No doubt you have heard and seen Dr. Fauci in multiple media formats discussing our country's response to COVID-19, but today he will speak about the importance of character as medical students learn their clinical skills in a conversation with Dr. John Hart, our Vice Dean of Professional Formation at Stritch and a faculty member in our bioethics department. Now it is my distinct honor to welcome the country's leading infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci to Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine, Dr. Hart. Very Perfect. well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and please do call me John, if you would. It's great mm -hmm. to have you here. I'm gonna start with the two most common asked questions from our audience today, and they bear upon the COVID pandemic. The first being, when do you think we might approach a return to something that feels like normal? And what do we need to do to get there? And second, how concerned should we be about these new variant strains that are presenting? Well, John, the, the answer to the first question is really directly related to the answer to the second question. So all things being equal, let's put the variants aside for a moment and just look at where we are at now with the situation that we have in this country, which is also uh, related to one of the two 
variants globally or three variants globally that we're concerned about, the things that we're following. One is the UK, the 117. The other one is the 351 in South Africa. And the other one is the P1 in Brazil. So if you take a look at the variant that's in the UK, it also right now is in about 28 to 30 states in the United States, well over 350, 400 people have it. Let's just look at the United States and the UK variant, which we already have. It looks very much like the vaccines that we are now distributing, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, uh, both in vitro in the test tube and likely clinically in the wild would cover that variant reasonably well. So where are we now? We have a situation where one can project that if we efficiently and effectively vaccinate enough people to get what we generally refer to as herd immunity, which I believe is still an estimate since we don't know with this pathogen exactly what it would be. We know for measles generally what it would be. If you get below 90%, you get into the 80s, then you start seeing the blips of outbreaks that we saw in New York. Remember in the Hasidic Jewish population where they didn't vaccinate their community and they got into trouble. I think it's going to be around 70 to 85% necessity in the United States. Given the pace of the vaccinations right now, that will pick up, particularly now as we get into February, March, and April, you're going to see an escalation both in the vaccines that are available and the efficiency with which vaccines are done. Because we're starting on a new program. There's some bumps in the road, a couple of hiccups. So there are some places that don't have enough. Some are not using it efficiently. But in general, we're going to be going in the right direction. I would think that by the end of the summer, that well, by the time we get to April, we will have been through the categories. You know, we're in 1A, nursing homes and, and healthcare providers. The next one is going to be people over 65, 75, and those who are essential workers in the community. I think by the time we get to April, we will have gotten through all the categories so we can now say it's like open season in the sense that anybody, whatever category you're in, you can get vaccinated. However, logistically, it's going to probably take through the summer towards the end of the summer before we have that substantial proportion of the population vaccinated. That being the case, then we can start approaching a degree of normality in the fall. That doesn't mean it's going to be like a light switch you turn on and off, but it's going to be really getting close to doing things with much less constraints that we're doing now. The thing that we have to really keep our eye on, because you want to be perfectly honest with everybody, particularly the American public who are looking at this very carefully, there is a concern about this South African isolate because it doesn't appear from an in vitro neutralization assay that the antibodies induced by the vaccines are diminished by multifold. How that translates into clinical efficacy in the field, I think we're going to know reasonably soon when data from trials that are taking place simultaneously in the UK and in South Africa, or in the USA and in South Africa and Brazil. So if all things work well and we're lucky, we'll start approaching normalcy, some form of normalcy by the fall. But we likely will have to at least start making alternative uh, boost shots that would cover specifically the South African isolate.
Sorry for the long-winded answer, but it's it's complicated. No, it's very helpful and, and timely for sure. So thank you for that. Allow me to shift gears a little bit more towards the theme of our conversation today. As you know, we're one of four Jesuit Catholic medical schools here in the country. And you reflecting on kind of grounding principles in your own life have said in the past that you would self-describe as a humanist. And elaborating on that, you said, I have faith in the goodness of humankind. This is a year, Dr. Fauci, where you and your family have had to take on a federal security detail because of threats of violence against you and your loved ones. You've been the target of a fair amount of vitriol. And I'm wondering if your faith in the goodness of humankind has been shaken at all, given the events of the past year. You know, I, uh, let me give this as a, as a frank, honest answer. It hasn't been shaken in the sense of my feeling that for the most part, that the better angels prevail in society. But I am impressed about how people who you think might not have responded in a way that they have, have either tolerated or gone along with a significant and disturbing degree of divisiveness in society. I think, you know, one of the great things about the Jesuit education that I had from high school and college is that it was, you know, steeped in the classics. At least that's what I did at Regis and at Holy Cross. And you had a good feel for the history of civilizations and how with our training that we have, how we can integrate our thought processes and how we handle situations by taking it in context of what humanism means and how that essentially was handled throughout centuries. So there are going to be people who are extremist, no matter where you are and what era you live in. But the overwhelming majority of mankind, I believe, under the appropriate circumstances, really will be expressive of what I refer to the better angels in society. So I have not had that shaken. But what we've seen is that because of the divisiveness in society, there have been an extraordinary number of people who may not be of the kind that are really extremist, but they certainly sympathize with the extremists, which is something that I think we need to keep our eye out on and be careful of because that could get worse if we don't do that. Thank you. So you referenced there um, your own background and training uh, with the society. And in previous interviews, you've referenced with fondness the strange course of studies you took entitled AB Greek Pre-Med. I was wondering if you'd say a word or two about what seems like this dual passion in your life for the humanities and science. And as a physician scientist, would you share with us a bit about what you think the potential role for the humanities is in the life of a good doctor or scientist? Well, I think for some people that it would play a major role. It certainly is what I am grounded in, but I'm, I believe, humble and modest enough to know that that doesn't mean it works for everyone. Because whenever I talk about the humanities, I want to make sure I don't offend my colleagues who've done nothing but physics, calculus, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I've done, you know, philosophical psychology, metaphysics, <laughs> ethics, and those things. I, I don't want to offend anyone. But for me, for my own inner self, my personality, I have always been very, very much interested in the 
human species, the humankind. I'm more interested in the philosophy of man than the physiology of man, as it were. And I also found along the way of my training that I did have an affinity for, a liking for, and somewhat of an aptitude in pure science. So from the very beginning, which was when people asked me, why did you decide to go into medicine? You know, it was one of those things, I guess it was somewhere, I guess, in my sophomore year at Regis High School, when I said, how do I combine um, the fact that I am a people person, uh, I want to continue to, to pursue studies of people. Uh, that's why I liked so much the classics. Studying Greek and Latin is more than just translating the Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> you know, it goes beyond that. It, it's just getting to know people centuries ago and really puts it into perspective of what mankind is capable of doing, what mankind is capable of enduring. And I was always very much struck by that. Then I had to balance that with the fact that I really liked biology and I really liked science and I really liked chemistry. And to me, the absolute natural marriage of that for me was medicine. Uh, so that works for me. And that's what I said. I want to go back, John, and say that doesn't mean if somebody didn't get to where I got through pure physics and calculus and, and that is, is, is fine. But fast forwarding to now, to where I am dealing with outbreaks and pandemics and the global response to that, I can tell you that my training and my affinity for the human species and humanism has fared me as well or better than if I was just worrying about, you know, a T cell versus a B cell versus a receptor. You have to know about that because that's integral to the science we have. But boy, when I, when I figure out things and decisions that I have to make in policy that involve global health, the humanism aspect of it just contributes as much or more than the other. It's a beautiful description of uh, that kind of classical education. It's a means of getting to know people. I want to ask you about a particular person in your life, Mr. Larry Kramer. And um, as, as you well know, he was a pivotal figure in the start of the HIV AIDS uh, outbreak and his work to garner public attention and working on it. And your relationship with him is a unique one. It spanned his writing a letter to you beginning an open letter to an incompetent idiot to his remarking that you were the only true and great hero amongst government officials at that time. And if I'm not mistaken, I've seen both of you in various interviews remark on your shared love for one another. What could you say to us about what you learned from Mr. Larry Kramer, what he taught you and how that relationship transformed from one of initial open hostility to one of serious collaboration and partnership that did an awful lot of good for the world? It was very complicated. I'll try and make it, uh, you know, as understandable, but as brief as possible, John. When he wrote that letter in the San Francisco Examiner, it was at a time when the federal government, the scientific enterprise, the scientific establishment, medical schools, academic centers, and the regulatory element of our medical profession, the FDA and other regulatory uh, issues, were very rigid in a positive way, because they wanted the pristine nature of science. You do a clinical trial this way. These are the inclusion criteria. These are the exclusion criteria. This is the regulatory pathway. 
but we were uh, met with a unique disease that came out of nowhere that selectively in many respects impacted a certain demographic group. And in the beginning, in the early years, it was clear that virtually everybody was dying. Uh, and they were dying pretty quickly after they were diagnosed, even though now that we know when you do tests and you can get infected, that you maybe have gone years before you got clinically ill. But we were applying the criteria of clinical trials and uh, approval of drugs in the standard, somewhat rigid way. In addition, we were not recognizing the importance of this emerging and exploding uh, outbreak. The federal government at the time, it was Ronald Reagan's administration, with all of the many good things that Ronald Reagan has done, he did not use the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to the fact that we were dealing with an emerging plague. And these activists, which were led by this iconoclastic, talented author, playwright, firebrand, wanted the attention of the federal government. Now, the federal government wanted nothing to do with the activists because it was a highly conservative, these were mostly gay men. I was out there essentially beating the bushes to get things done for this disease, which was good news. The sobering news is I became the face of the federal government. And Larry saw me as I'm gonna get the attention of the federal government and the way I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna really attack this guy, i.e. me. So what happened is that he did that. And I believe, apropos of the conversation we've had over the last several minutes, I was able to, and now I can analyze it retrospectively, but I was saying to myself as the scientific community was running away from the activists, they said, what are these crazy people? They look funny. They act funny. They attack us. They go into St. Patrick's Cathedral and try and shut it down. They shut down Wall Street. And here he is attacking me. And one of the best things I've ever done was hearken back to the training that we're talking about today and said, you know, let me find out rather than being reflexly run away from this guy, let me put myself in his shoes. The way I put myself in the shoes of the Greeks and the Romans and those back then and see what they thought and what they acted. And I said to myself, despite the theatrical behavior, that what they were saying was making perfect sense. Both Larry and all of the other young activists in ACT UP and all of the other groups that he essentially helped form. And what I did is instead of running away from him, I extended myself to him and said, let's sit down and talk because I think we have a lot of things in common. I did that not only with him, but with other of the activists. And it became clear as iconoclastic as was, as irreverent as he was, as all of the things he did, deep down, we both had the same objective to end this horrible outbreak that was killing his people, as he called it, because he was very much oriented. I'm a gay man. And frankly, the only thing I really care about is the injustices that have been thrown upon men who have sex with men and, and women essentially LBGT community. And he actually and I over the years went from this confrontative to understanding, to colleagues, to friends, to really, really good friends. And that took place over a few decades 
literally a few decades where towards the end, we, we were as close as you possibly could be. I mean, I was his physician. I helped him get better medical care in the sense when he got his liver transplant and we became very close. And it was only because I went through the theatrics and listened to what he had to say. And he had a lot of good things to say. That's a beautiful testament to the power of kind of a faithful attentiveness in a relationship that allows it to grow. So thank you for that. Given our abbreviated time, let me ask you just one closing question. If you found yourself as a lecturer in our medical school and you knew it would be your last lecture with our medical students, what would be the message you'd wanna offer a soon to be graduating group of young men and women who'd be joining your profession? Oh, well, I would say that they may not realize it now, but they are entering into a profession that has almost unlimited possibilities for people to pursue things that they have passion for. People who are not in medicine will say, well, you're just saying that because you're a physician and you've been a physician for 50 years. But in many respects, I cannot think of a more toady potential profession than that of medicine because of the so many things you can do. You can have the excitement and the gratification of taking care of an individual patient, of taking care of them and having their life and their, you know, everything about them put in your hands. You can teach. You can look at the world as a global laboratory and make global health what it is you want to do. You can do fundamental basic research for discoveries. You can go into other professions with medicine as a background. How many journalists I know that are actually physicians. So when people talk about the restrictions of what path they chose in life, I say, wow, you got to look at medicine. You know, when I started off in Cornell Medical School, the thing I really, really wanted to do is I wanted to take a few years of residency, what I did, take a chief residency, which I did, go to the NIH and get a fellowship in infectious disease and come back to the New York hospital and practice medicine, you know, on York Avenue and 68th street. That, that's all I wanted to do. But as the years went by and I got exposed to other things, my career course changed in different directions. And it was changed by things that were put in front of me that I did not anticipate. My liking research, which I had no idea I would like research, the HIV AIDS pandemic, which transformed my professional career and my life, becoming the director of an institute when I never thought in a million years I'd ever want to get into administration or science administration, and then realizing that the impact you can have on global health would be extraordinary. And then getting involved in policy where by accident, you had presidents of the United States who would come to you to get ideas about what the right policy would be through outbreaks like HIV, pandemic flu, et cetera, et cetera, to having the opportunity to work with President George W. Bush to develop the PEPFAR program. So if you had told me when I was finishing medical school, getting ready to start an internship, would I be involved in developing a global health program to take care of, prevent, and treat 
HIV throughout the world that thus far has been involved in saving about 15 million lives, I would tell you, you were completely crazy. You had no idea what you were talking about. So again, my, my message to people who'd be graduating now there at Loyola would be keep an open mind because an amazing amount of opportunities are gonna be thrown in front of you. You just need to be alert and awake for them and don't let them go by if in fact it's something that you would be interested in doing. Dr. Fauci, thank you. I'm gonna hand over to our Dean, Dr. Sam Marzo to close us up. But on behalf of the university community, I know I speak for them when I say that we are grateful to God for your life and for a lifetime spent in service to humankind. So my heartfelt thanks for today. Dr. Thank Marzo. you very much, John, appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Fauci, for a great discussion. On behalf of the Loyola University of Chicago and the Stritch School of Medicine, we'd like to thank you for participating um, in this conversation. You are an exceptionally gifted physician researcher, a national treasure and an inspiration for all of us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media to get notifications about new episodes. The views and opinions expressed by guests and hosts on this podcast are their own and do not represent the various community and professional organizations to which the speaker might belong. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with another episode next week.